Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. Um, you get a weekly bonus episode of my uh, ramblings of the week of everything else I'm watching besides the movies that we talk about weekly, um, and we have a lot of fun on that show as well. So I do want to take a moment to thank my top patrons and they are Chris Balga, Jeff Woodman, Michael Cross, and Philip Barker. Thank you guys so much uh, for keeping the lights on. Uh, we have links in the show notes to swag if you need any swag. We have a Discord, a Facebook group, a website. And lastly, um, if you like this episode, please join us uh, for the after party on Friday after you hear this because Tim is going to join me again, and we're going to kind of just recap the episodes, get some of y'all's thoughts, and just chat with you live. It's a lot of fun. It's just hanging out. So if you have time, join us. Uh, and lastly, if you like what you hear today, please subscribe and rate the show. It does help new listeners find us. And now I will move into introducing my guest. I already kind of gave it away, but a familiar voice on the show. I have Tim Rooney on. Say hi, hi Tim. Hi, how's everybody doing? <laughs> i'm glad that you're back it's been a little while yeah i'm trying i'm racking my brain when was the last time i think it was citizen kane i think that's the last episode we did i feel like you're right somebody the other day i think bart he was like let's do citizen kane i was like well that's we already did that one <laughs> yeah <laughs> you took you took it already <laughs> and that was one of those ones like i i called my shot like i was babe ruth just like all right that's where that's where this episode's going right there that i'm gonna call uh citizen kane before somebody else does because i know because of the taste of so many people in the group and who are guests in this podcast are very eclectic i knew that was going to be um spoken about recently uh, eventually but and so that's why i chose that one but for, at least for this episode i did something that's a little more niche compared to citizen kane you did um every episode that you've done has been great but you know my guest always chooses the movie so what movie did you pick to talk about today? i chose stanley kubrick's 1956 movie the killing nice yeah. Um, you know, I before we kind of dive into our thoughts in the show and your experiences, I do want to tell everybody out there that this will not be spoiler free. We're going to chat about this movie probably in depth. So if you need to go see it first, do that. Um, and, you know, if you're still here, if you're still with us, I'm going to go ahead and read the synopsis. Um, career criminal Johnny Clay recruits a sharpshooter, a crooked police officer, a bartender, 
and a betting teller man, George, among others, for one last job before he goes straight and marries his fiancée, Faye. But when George tells his restless wife, Sherry, about the scheme to steal millions, millions, (laughs) millions from the racetrack where he works, she hatches a plan of her own. Yeah, and like like that the moment there when you said millions, I'm like we were in the USSR for some. This is where this heist is happening. <laughs> millions, <laughs> millions, millions. Well, that's exactly, Doctor Evil, right there. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, I just slipped into Doctor Evil. I don't know. That was, was perfect. Random. Um, <laughs> but so Tim, um, what? What is your experience with this movie? Like, when did you first see it? This one, I, I was literally racking my brain earlier today to figure out when did I first saw this because I know I I know I had rented it from my local library, which I still do, um, which I have not gone back to the local library since the pandemic. It's been open, but I just haven't gone back there yet. But like prior to that, I was a frequent. Um, user of the local library system because they have a great movie um, collection and book collection obviously and yeah you know i I just want to interject really quick i i think that's awesome that you did that because that's something i don't know a lot of people i don't know if a lot of people know that but your local library is a really excellent source for movies um and and sometimes they have like online options as well anyway i just wanted to say that Keep libraries alive. <laughs> exactly, and I <laughs> echo that sentiment. I mean, to the point that I would use when I was in college, I used the interlibrary system uh, of books and movies, and um, like a lot of people going out partying, and I'm reading a book about obscure cinematographers from uh, from Europe and everything. Like that's what I'm spending my Friday night doing, and uh, <laughs> like so, like obviously the two wild and crazy guys sketched from SNL. That's me, that's me and my buddy Larry for sure. Um, <laughs> and I remember I, it might have been just me browsing, and I just pulled the DVD cover up, and I saw Sterling Hayden um, says the killing on, and I'm like, oh okay, and I read the back cover of it, and I'm like, all right, I guess I'll check this out. And I had seen other Stanley Kubrick movies prior to this. Like I, I prior, by this point, I must have seen bits of The Shining. I must have seen A Clockwork Orange, and and maybe have attempted Two Thousand One at this point. But this is like the first time I saw like his early, early work, which I don't think, other than maybe Strange Love and Lolita, is not spoken about enough in comparison to his later work. I feel like you don't hear about it almost at all. I mean, like, even I feel like you hear Paths of Glory more than you hear about the killing. Yeah, and which is that's my personal favorite Kubrick movie is Paths of Glory. So, yeah, oh. that's a little trivia for you right there. And um, <laughs> and has like one of my favorite overacted moments in movie history when it's Kirk Douglas like berating the um, cold hearted general and he's just like. Like, I think you're a degenerate, and you're going to go to hell with all that. And, like, he says that, and his, his, his the fop <laughs> in his hair, like, does, like, a 360 on his head as he accentuates that line right there. And I'm like, that is that is an over-the-top uh, line delivery, but I am here for it. <laughs> I think I think Michael Cross loaned that to me one time. Michael, tell me if I'm right or not. I feel like he loaned that to me. Like, like it was one of those things where he demanded I watch it and, and just sent it to me. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, so I have not seen this before. Well, this is going to be an awkward review. It's going to be one person speaking and the other person, like, I have no idea what's going <laughs> well, on. Well, I, I saw it okay, yesterday, <laughs> so <laughs> don't worry. But uh, I had not seen it before, and, you know, like, when you watch, sometimes I'll, I don't know if you do this, but I'm 
the kind of person that like if I like a genre or something I'll just like watch random videos on YouTube they're like oh what are the best ones or I'll read like a list or something like that and this one comes up a lot and I think it's weird that I haven't seen it because it's like two things that I like Stanley Kubrick and uh, noir so I don't know why I haven't seen it yet um so when you picked it I was like oh yeah that I've been meaning to check that out so I was I was excited to watch it and you know happy to report that I enjoyed it a lot so you know don't worry I'll have I'll have some things to say I won't I probably won't have seen it as many times as you have because I've only seen it once, but, um, you know, I, I have input, so I'm, I'm excited that you picked Yeah, this like, I, I knew that would be an easy sell for you because you're such a huge Cooper <laughs> fan. I'm just like, it's kind of like, we could do this and this, but we also could do a Stanley Kubrick movie and like, all right, and you make sure that's the last one suggested. So it's like, okay, the rule three right there, you got to go with that one. So that's why I was like, you know what? I think this one it will be easy, uh, easy selling for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we can talk about whatever movie you pick, but I'm certainly not going to turn down talking about uh, Stanley Kubrick film for sure. Definitely. Um, I've got a couple quick facts I wanted to put out there um, and then, you know, jump in with yours, react or add to that. Uh, the first one I had was that the initial test screenings were so poor, citing the nonlinear structure as the main problem. Stanley Kubrick was forced to go back and edit the film in a linear fashion, actually making the film even more confusing. In the end, it was released in its original form and is often cited as being a huge influence on other nonlinear films like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Yeah, it's like, like you think of Reservoir Dogs, like I think the biggest influences on Reservoir Dogs are I agree. I thought about Reservoir Dogs a lot watching yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> like you think it's like obviously the ones in Reservoir Dogs is obviously this um, City on Fire, the Ringo Lamb movie, which is about a undercover cop um, trying to stop a gang and becomes best friends with one of the criminals who who's willing to get into a standoff with many guns pointed at, a, at, at each other at the end, very much like how the movie ends, mm -hmm. and the taking of Pelham one two three because a lot of the, the, those characters, the ones who are the the kidnappers use color-coded names like Mr. Green and Mr. Gray very much like... Right. And there's that scene, too, where um, the, uh, I guess like the lead character comes back to a point, sees somebody run out of the building to get in a car, and he just drives off. That part kind of reminded me a little bit of Pulp Fiction, you know? Because you're seeing it from the vantage point of inside of his car, and then he's like watching things happen. And I know like... Also, Hitchcock influenced that scene, too. But I'm just saying, like, it kind of reminded me of that moment of, like, walking into the middle of something, realizing things are going sideways, and then just leaving. But getting to see that from the vantage point of the person, like, coming into the situation. Whereas normally, I feel like a lot of times the camera is pulled back, and you're sort of like a third-party observer of it. Right, because you think of, like, there's a lot of people saying, like, you said third-party. Like, you think of a camera that's standoff, standoffs between two characters. You can say, like, that's third-person perspective and over yeah. the shoulder could be second person perspective and then a pov is obviously the first person perspective and something like that like you said being behind somebody like looking through the windshield and seeing their perspective it's like okay i this is kind of, this is very subjective this is a not objective kind of point of view so you're wondering like what the hell is going on here yeah, and it, I don't know why, but I've, I always like it in a movie when I feel that way. When things look chaotic and you actually feel that energy, because I think a lot of times in movies we're so safe, we're so far away that we don't get to experience that. Um, so I, I really, that scene really stuck with me. Um, 
Another fact that I had was that Kirk Douglas was so impressed with this film that he sought out the director for his next project, Paths of Glory, in 1957. Yeah, and like it, it's such an unfortunate thing because of <clears throat> that the Kubrick and Kirk Douglas battled so much during Paths of Glory that it was soured by the end of the movie. However... Kirk Douglas sought out Kubrick again for Spartacus, but like their relationship got even worse during the making of that movie that they never worked again. Ugh, well. <sighs> movie drama, it yeah, happens. Yeah, but also like Spartacus just seems like the least Kubrickian movie out there. It it does, yeah. <laughs> like I sometimes forget that he directed that one. Um, the narration that was added was added at the studio's insistence, and Stanley Kubrick hated the idea, and thus makes much of the information the narrator provides false or mistaken. And thank God, because I didn't like that part of the movie either. <laughs> I was happy when I read that. I was like, I don't like the narration in this film. You don't want the sound of Walter Cronkite narrating everything to you as everybody walks in through doors and outdoors and everything. It always, uh, I, I always hate it. To be honest, it always feels forced. And just having reviewed so many movies um, and talked about them so many times, it, it's like forced on the director to do that. Um, like I think of like Blade Runner, you know, movies like that where they didn't want to have a narration, but they're like, you need one. And I know that it's kind of, I mean, it's a lot of noir films did have narration and I think sometimes it, it, it can add to it when it's based on like a book and that inner monologue is needed. But I just feel like Kubrick's the kind of person that hates that. And he said that. And his movies don't need that. I feel like you can give too much away. And I think it's better to just watch things unfold and not necessarily have to know what everyone's thinking. Right. I, there, there is a... There's a fine line of respecting the audience and purposely withholding information just to have a sense of confusion or or you think you're having a mystery, but you're just creating confusion. Right, yeah. Um, but also, like, when it comes to narration, you think of, I, I, I think back in the, was it uh, an adaptation when Brian Cox playing the famous storytelling author Robin McKee, um yelling at Nicolas Cage is like I, I don't want any narration and it shows that it's a weak storytelling anybody any moron can write n narration to explain the plot of the movie <laughs> yeah yeah it just it always feels weird and it's like it, in most movies we don't get to hear what everyone's thinking and somehow the story goes along just fine so it does it can feel like a cheat like it works really well in books and doesn't always work well in movies yeah like but you think like the obviously the exceptions are like the goodfellas and the shawshank redemption oh, yeah. um sure but then yeah. like think of saying like another film noir movie think of say coen brothers the blood blood simple imagine that movie had narration it would not work whatsoever it that movie thrives in the fact that it has a weird atmosphere that you just kind of go with either you're worth it or not yeah, I think, you know, when you're you're totally right. I mean, there there's definitely movies where it does work really well. I think a lot of it depends on the filmmaker and the kind of story he's telling. So, you're right. I don't always hate them, but yeah, in certain movies it just doesn't add anything. I don't feel like the narration adds a lot in this movie. Uh, but you know, I understand why it happened, and it doesn't hurt my enjoyment of the movie overall. No. Uh, it's just one of those things you just kind of like, all right, just kind of roll with it. It's, just, it's luckily that's not, like, constant. It's literally just the beginning of the scene, just the, 
set things up, but it's not like constantly like so like, true. He was thinking yeah. this while this was happening. Yada yada yada. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be awful, but <laughs> fortunately that didn't happen. Um, this was directed and co-written by Stanley Kubrick, um, and we've talked about Stanley Kubrick. I think for The Shining, I think that's it. I think this is like the second Stanley Kubrick movie we've talked about. Really? I think so. Although I say that, and there's been so many episodes. You know that I'm at like, I think this is like the 191st episode. Really? So, yeah. And some of those have been like mini-sodes and things like that. But yeah, there's there's quite a few. So sometimes I forget like <laughs> what movie we've covered. Sometimes people ask me and I have to go back through our catalog. But I believe this is the second one. Just imagine like the Santa Claus, like uh, like all like the list of everything. It's just in boxes and boxes and boxes. That's the, the catalog of everything you've covered on this show. <laughs> well, and it, it doesn't help that I'm such a forgetful person, but yeah. Well, I'm just glad that you remember that you're recording a show and like not halfway through the episode. Like, True. Well, wait, what are we doing again? Like, oh, oh. This is... <laughs> yeah, no, I don't have like memento disease or anything. <laughs> um, But yeah, so, you know, this is our second time talking about this director. And, you know, you mentioned your favorite movie. You know mine. Everyone knows mine. Um, but you know, I like this, I like this one and I like, um, full metal jacket a lot. Um, and I like 2001. I think those are like the strongest ones for me personally, of his movies. It's like, I have such a, I have a complicated relationship with Stanley Kubrick and this is when we put on our <laughs> boxing gloves. Um, okay. No, cause I, <laughs> I feel like. I think there's so much film literature or criticism that's been written saying that like he could do no wrong and that he was absolutely perfect mm. in everything he did. Like, yes, he was very exacting in what he wanted to tell. I mean, even to the point that he would pull his movie from theaters to recut it, to put it back out there just to see how it would change the narrative of whatever story he was telling. But mm -hmm. all movies are compromises. Everything that you see is a compromise sure. of what they had in their head. And mm -hmm. I feel like like there's so many like there are, there's certain uh, video essays out there that say like everything is like has deeper meaning and I I I've, like obviously your favorite movie of his is obviously The Shining and mm -hmm. like, the, the, I find the the documentary Room Two Three Seven the most like ludicrous thing out there like okay it hurts my head I I watched like twenty or thirty minutes of it and I was like y'all this is it's a bit much. Like, what was it? I don't think um, Plastic Man could stretch that far to get all these these kind of theories and time into this move right here. Like, it is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's meaning in his films, and there's a lot of detail added, but sometimes it's just ambiance, you know? Like, it's just adding to the mood of the story. They're just things that he liked, things he wanted to include. I don't think it's that deep. <laughs> like, I, I think, you know, there's a, le there's a, I don't know, there's a ceiling. And yeah, that documentary, oh, I don't know. That was a little much for me. So I, I completely see that. And so like, and I guess this is maybe the hipster in me, but I think I prefer his early work, like up until like 2001. And even though I enjoy 2001, but like I have to be in a certain mood to watch it. I mean, I've only watched it a handful of times. And one of them like I went on my way with my friend Tommy to see that on seventy millimeter film in, in New York City because like we realized that's an experience we don't want to miss and that's why mm -hmm. we went out of way to see that. But like like I of course I enjoy Full Metal Jacket. Um 
Barry Lyndon, I needed to see again. I think I've only seen that once. Um, but I think it's so funny. Like, we're speaking about Stanley Kubrick, and I just watched, uh, I just got on Blu-ray, uh, Failsafe, which was directed by Sidney Lumet, and it's it's the serious version of Doctor Strange Love. Ah, uh, okay. And, like, they, were, they came out, and, like, Failsafe was done independently. Columbia bought it in the middle of the plagiarism, plagiarism um, lawsuits was happening between the two authors of the two books that the, those respective movies were based on and they put out Doctor Strange Love first and then Failsafe so Doctor Strange Love made money Failsafe didn't and mm. and like you put them side by side there's a lot of similarities and much like uh, but also a connection to the killing Sterling Hayden's in uh, Doctor Strange Love oh yeah yeah, I mean, honestly, like, I, I totally get what you're saying, because this movie's tone, vibe, everything about it is so different from those other movies, so I could definitely see that there could absolutely be, like, a this period of Kubrick and this period of Kubrick fandom, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, like, like I'll watch A Clockwork Orange, but, like, that's another one, like, I have to prepare myself I'm going to watch A Clockwork Orange because of just how nihilistic that film is and is how brutal is on the psyche yeah i'm not crazy about that one i mean i'd cover it on the show but not not a big fan of that that's one. understandable um it, maybe i need to see it again that's possible but yeah ironically um you know he's one of my favorite directors but i think yeah that one i'm not crazy about and then lolita i straight up i'm like no nah, just pick another one <laughs> Like, I don't really want to cover that one. Um, Barry Lyndon, I've seen. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that I'm with you more than you realize. Like, I there are some of his films that just didn't jive with me, and I that's okay, you know? Yeah, uh, it, it's so funny. Like, I literally had the conversation recently with a friend. We, like, quoted, like, line for line, a uh, moment from Full Metal Jacket. It was like... Um, Sir, why do you, like why do you have that uh, peace sign on Born to Kill on your helmet? I think I was trying to show the duality of men. The what? The duality of men, sir. And we just had that for, down verbatim, <laughs> and then we just cracked ourselves up because we didn't. We, we just fell into it like we were in an improv class and just like said we yes and ourselves throughout the entire scene. Yeah, yeah. I I think there are some of his movies that I am fiercely loyal to, and then some of his other work, I'm like meh. So I think that's okay. Like you don't have to like every single movie um, that a director made, or, or you're like a traitor or something. It's okay to have opinions. Yeah, like like my favorite filmmaker is Steven Spielberg, but I do not like Hook. <laughs> I love. Hook. I know. Maybe it was the time I saw it at though. <laughs> um, well, okay. So back to this movie. Um, I think you know, in talking about the actors and, um, and, and other aspects of the film as well, I think we should weave that into, let's talk about some of your favorite scenes. Uh, I think one of my favorite scenes is when all the hoods come together and all the, like the first, my first favorite scene is like when all the hoods come together in that apartment and lay out the entire scheme from front to back. Mm -hmm. And it all goes kind of sideways. The first time it goes sideways where Sherry played by Marie Winster um, the the wife of te the teller, a lot played by Elijah Cook Jr., comes in and kind of starts to see 
the things of doubt in the minds of everybody that's a part of this little scheme here and how everything is going to everything eventually is going to fall apart. It's so funny because there's a lot of things about this movie that fit in a lot of like noir tropes. Um but they're done so well. So like, you know, Sherry and her husband and their dynamic and like their you know tense relationship and then that leads him to tell her everything and then that backfires later like you said when when she's listening on the other side of the door right and it just just makes you question here like if if their marriage is just so contentious now it does make you wonder like what do they what did they see in each other prior to the beginning of the story Seriously, because, like, she says that, you know, he had promised her he would be rich, and it's like, okay, but, I mean, you knew who he was, right? Like, how did that convince you? Um, It's always funny, too, in, like, older movies, like, you you know they're mismatched because she's, like, so much taller than him. Yeah. And, (laughs) like, goofily taller than him. Yeah. and that's just like such a, and that, that feels like such a thing that you saw in older movies of like the wife that's like really mad that the husband's not rich. Um, I don't know. I thought she did such a good job. Uh, she was evil, I guess, but very, a very fun character. And uh, her husband, I thought, played his part perfectly too. Right. I, I find her to be like one, like, if you want an example of the femme fatale character in film noir she's one of the prime examples of that. Like, if you're going to write a paper about that, you're going to write an entire <laughs> yeah. dissertation about Sherry's characterization in this movie alone. Right, and Mary Windsor does a lot with it. I mean, she chews up every scene that she's in, and I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, like when when her husband's trying to convince her of this, like, <clears throat> of like, no, yeah, I'm part of a really big scheme. I, I'm like, uh, uh, I'm I'm a real man right now. And she's like, like, oh, yes, whatever you say, honey. Like, she just kind of just, like, doesn't take him seriously until he's like, all right, fine, make jokes. And then that's when she sits up and starts to realize, oh, really, honey? Like, what? so when's it going to happen? So when are we going to be rolling in the money here? The hundreds of thousands of dollars that you promised me. Yeah, and I love that she's, what he is, I guess the dynamic between him and her, she's got that same dynamic with her lover as well. Um, that sort of uneven relationship where one person is way more interested than the other and that gives them leverage and also just adds fun to this plot. Yeah, she has um, the character of Val and her husband, George, so both of them wrapped around her finger with ease. Yeah, although I felt like, you know, in the first scene with Val, you know, he implies that he's got other women in his life and she's really upset about that for some reason, even though she's married. Um, <laughs> and so I felt kind of like they were a little bit unevenly matched, but you're right. Then later she's, she does control the situation for sure. Yeah. And in fact, like, like, like the, the, the highest went off without a hitch. Well, a little bit without a hitch. And it, it all goes up because of, Sherry telling Val and Val getting his buddy and uh, an explosive shootout that ends in just moments of, that kills 90% of the crew that happens um, to rob the racetrack. Yes. Um, man. The uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the the clown scene? Like the actual the heist, is, heist part? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I th- yeah, this... Oh, go ahead. You go I ahead. I was saying like 
I, I have a feeling that's part of where the Joker mask is designed in The Dark Knight may have came from that. No kidding. It's creepy. <laughs> it's like upsetting to look at. Um, and very, very effective in the scene. Right. I mean, like, clowns get a bad rep. I think probably 99% of the clowns <laughs> out there that go to clown school and everything and do that to entertain people, especially children, are wonderful human beings. But it's just the 1% of really terrible clowns that rise to the, the occasion of making it a very real phobia for people. And mm-hmm. what was Johnny's clown getup that he wears he bursts in the door shotgun in hand to rob the racetrack is unnerving it's a very scary image to look at yeah i think you know i've seen like uh, picking apart what's creepy what isn't in in film and in in real life and i think there's something about masks you know because you can't read the emotion of the person wearing it um it's just automatically creepy i mean we just we're just designed to automatically know that there's something not right about that uh, from just a visual standpoint. So I think um, that mask adds that level to that scene of, you know, even the audience, we're not sure exactly what he's feeling or thinking behind that mask. And and, and so we kind of get to feel that same level of adrenaline too. And then also like it's wacky, you know? So like it's a scary situation, but then it's like a wacky clown mask. Right. I mean, like obviously you think of like John Wayne Gacy, forever changes the face of what clowns are. Uh, sure, yeah, and, yeah. And then, of course, there's yeah, Pennywise, the clown, both versions <laughs> of it. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah. I think Stephen King used to get a lot of flack for it, and he's like, hey, it was Wayne Gacy. It wasn't just me. Oh, I right. got the idea from him. So, you know. But yeah, Pennywise gets a lot of... Um, but, you know, I, I'm nostalgic for, was it last year when there were a lot of creepy clowns ever, everywhere? I would take that over what we're going through right now. Right. I mean, like, like <laughs> I would take the, the as creepy, as uh, creepy clowns or or take it like you're going to a movie theater. Like, I don't know who's, who's mental in this movie theater right now. I don't know. But you know what? I'll take that right <laughs> now. And it's so funny, like you saying, mass takes pretty part of humanity right now. And, like, we're all forced to deal with that because of the current situation Whoa. we're in. Very true. But it's not our eyes. You can still smize. Yes. <laughs> That's the one, like, caveat here. We're not all in full, like, a World War One gas mask. Like, we're ready for a mustard attack. Right. I think if we, were, if we had to cover our eyes, I think that would really be creepy. Um, but luckily, it's just just our mouth and nose. Yes. Um, but, you know, I, I, but, like, every... Every heist movie is built upon the fact that, like, it's all about drama. Like, the, the essence of drama is attention and obstacle. Like, I want this, mm-hmm. but this is in my way. I try to go around it, however this happens. And so it's a tit-for-tat until somebody wins. And in heist movie, very much like boxing movies, it's like, you know there's a certain structure what's going to happen here, and something is going to go wrong. And <laughs> from the very beginning, this heist should not have worked, but somehow does because one character, one of the members of the crew shows up drunk um oh yeah i another old trope um drunks being just portrayed so horribly it was like folks don't drink like anytime someone's drunk in like an old movie it's very comical 
I mean, it's not as bad as like reefer madness that makes you right. like 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 <laughs> somehow this marijuana is is maced, uh, laced with mescaline, but um, that's why everybody's freaking out like that. But no, like yeah, like it's like like yeah, you're a booze hound. Get out of here, kid. Um, and then there's a lot of bartenders being like, "Haven't you had enough in movies?" You know, like back then. Whereas I don't think that we really lean on that anymore for whatever reason. No, I mean like the handful, like the the times I've gone to bars, I think I've only seen one time when somebody was denied a drink and it got a little rowdy. But in so many older movies, <laughs> yeah, it's like it automatically fisticuffs come out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've, I've I've got some stories, not for me personally, uh, but so you say. I was, I was there. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> you know me; I'm so wild, getting kicked out of all these bars. Um, but yeah, no, I I like that scene because, like I said, it was kind of I appreciate it as a little bit of a throwback in 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 a movie that I think is shot in a very modern way. I mean, you know, the fact that it influences Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction is very felt. I think if if you're new to this movie, you would be like, oh, this feels more like a like a current film but then there's little stuff like that in there that you're like oh okay we are watching a movie from the 50s but i like it yeah i i mean even to the point that they have maurice the the uh, distraction to get johnny in behind um, enemy lines as were in the actual racetrack mm-hmm. and hiring a real wrestler and how you can tell he's a wrestler because of the <laughs> cauliflower ears he's got and how he manhandles multiple security guards at one time the term cauliflower ear used to really terrify me. I remember as a kid asking what that was and having it explained to me and then being terrified that somehow that would happen to me. <laughs> like, I thought that was a real concern in my daily life, that somehow I would get punched in the ear and uh, and that I would get cauliflower ear. Well, I mean, it's the same thing that uh, killer bees and uh, the, the quicksand and land sharks. That's yeah, all the reasonable that's things. a good point. It, it could go in that category of my childhood years. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the creepy clown mask is unnerving. Um, but also I enjoy the fact that like, as soon as he gets out of the room, he ditches that outfit and puts on sunglasses and walks out of there. Um, try to be as subtle as possible, but like looking down your feet as you walk out of the room, you draw some attention to yourself. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, I guess people just weren't ready for it, you know, so they're not, I guess it, well, it was a pretty ambitious heist, uh, it sounded like, to me, watching it, I was like, oh, this is, like, a lot of money. Like, I think it, if they would have aimed a little lower, it would have been better, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it, it, it looks really smooth. Like, everything he does, the way it's timed, getting to see, like, when he tells those guys to go on the other side of the door, they close it, he takes off the mask. Like, the tension in that scene I really liked. Because you're like, well, couldn't they open the door really quick? And, you know, intentionally having you have those thoughts and, and adding like weight to the to the scene and and an, um you know a sense of urgency to it right and like then you have like on the opposite side of the racetrack timothy carey's character who's the one who's creating the first ruckus um by assassinating a horse by, via sniper rifle and mm-hmm. how that like you think like oh this is gonna be like he's gonna make a friend along the way and it does not end uh well for him because of things he says but the the cosmic uh beings of the world's like you know what we're not gonna let you get away for that and he gets killed for it right right and also i, I love the fact that timothy carey 
at least in this movie, sounds like his his jaw was wired shut not too long ago, and so he's talking out of the back <laughs> of his teeth like this. This is how I'm going to deliver my dialogue through my bottom <laughs> chin. Yeah, another thing I feel that, you know, that feels very like 1950s, too. Yeah, and speaking of Reservoir Dogs, I think he was in the running to play Joe in that movie before he oh. passed away. Oh, so yeah, like there's another connection through um, Reservoir Dogs were there for you. So there's a little trivia mm-hmm. for you, people. <laughs> um, but I, I, I love the how Kubrick like stages so many scenes like in like smooth, long tracking shots. Things that he become yes. well known for later on. Right, and and again, something that makes the film seem a little bit more modern too. Right, because you think of so many movies like, all right, we're gonna stand here. In this position, we're going to have cameras cut around us right here. Like, we're just going to stand in this one position, and it's going to be... And we're just going to stand here and talk, and we're just have... We're going to find it in the editing, how we're going to dictate the rhythm of the scene. But it's like, no, no, we're going to move through a space here and create a sense of energy. Um, Like, apparently, I'm looking at it on the Wikipedia that... Because Kubrick loved wide-angle lenses, and, like, he was using a 25-millimeter lens, which is rather wide. The, The lower the number, the wider the image is... Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like a fifty millimeter is like what you the equivalent of what the human eye sees. Um, and then apparently the cinematographer had like butted heads on lens choices and everything. And Kubrick being very he's like, "Why are you making my job so hard?" <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And like, I, I think it was just the early indication of like, no, this is how the story should be told. And his very demanding nature that would become a staple of how he made movies going forward. Right. Because, I mean, when you do these tracking shots and wide-angle lenses, um, it's harder to block a scene. I mean, there's just way more that you have to be aware of. There's, you know, more things that can go wrong. And so you really admire the mastery of it. But I imagine being, you know, on the receiving end of that had to have been frustrating. Right. But I think as an actor I think it's probably more I would say fulfilling because it's not like sure you have to hit a mark and it can be kind of like oh this could be a little more difficult because it takes more time however it'd be like it could be more fulfilling okay that we get to move through a scene and there's a you can give it more actionable things to do like okay I walk here I do this and everything like that and like you give the actor business to, to to perform during the scene, they forget about what the objective of the scene is, and they just kind of like everything comes out more naturally. Agreed. It's kind of more like how it would be in a play, you know, because in, in that situation, they they have to move through, through the scene and everything um, the entire time, and so this is kind of like a smaller level of that. Yes, and uh, it's. Like you were saying before, like it, it doesn't seem like. Hmm. Like, I don't want to phrase this. It seems like. I think it's because of maybe Kubrick was younger compared to the Golden Age filmmakers. Like, by this yeah. point, like Michael Curtiz or William Wyler or Billy Wilder or even like Orson Welles at this point. Like, you can argue, obviously, Orson Welles with a touch of evil. It's. Right. It's very different compared to like the gangster movies of like Little Caesar and Public Enemy of the early thirties. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. <laughs> oh what? Public Enemy or Little Caesar? No, uh Touch of Evil. Oh, Touch of Evil is fantastic. 
And like I'm like watching it like obviously like most of the people that see it now is the the um like the, the his version that of the movie that he wanted, like the one that he wrote the huge manifesto defending his version of the movie to the studio. Um but so it's, it's that's a daring movie, like they get away mm-hmm. with some things that you think they would not be able to get away with in the 1950s. Agreed. And a great performance by Janet Lee, along with Charlton Heston, which mm-hmm. I find very, like, it's one of my favorite jokes in the movie Ed Wood when it's Vincent D'Onofrio as Orson Welles. He's like, he's like, oh, I'm making a movie over Universal. I got to cast Charlton Heston as a Mexican. And you're just like, <laughs> yeah. something that, just, that you would not do these days. Right, right. But yeah, like, so like I'll ask you, this is like your first time seeing it, like what scenes do you really stand out for you, the ones that we have not spoken about yet? Um, so let's see, let's talk a little bit about Faye. Um, I, I feel like the plot of, you know, Johnny coming back from prison and she waited for him, but he's going to do one more heist and she doesn't pick up on that for some reason. And so he's like, meet me over here. I'm going to come over there and we're going to take off on this plane. Um, that sets up the scene at the airport. And I think that the scene at the airport is probably one of my favorites of, in the movie. I know that's like the climax of the film, but I really liked it. It's such a gut punch. It is such a gut punch of an ending. But I, it is, but I wanted it to happen. Is that weird? Because I felt like, I don't know. I guess, you know, he he's like, I'm going to do one last thing. And it's like... Really, dude, like, you get out of prison, and the first thing you do is this. Like, you kind of deserve to lose it. <laughs> and it's just, and, like, everybody involved, too, isn't really, a like, a good person. And so, you know, everybody ends up, like, dying except him. Um, well, not every, well, yeah, everybody, right? Yeah, everybody's dead but him. Yeah, but him. And so, um... When he gets to the airport and they're having that argument about um, the luggage, which that certainly wouldn't fly today um, because they were like, he's acting so shady about it. Like, well, we have to take this luggage on. And they're like, oh, it's too heavy. And he's like, well, just do it anyway. And they're like, we're going to have to run it through the thing. And he's like, no, 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 come on, do it, do it, do it, which would be a huge red flag. He'd be like, okay, take your luggage off of there. We're going to open it right now. Yeah. Um, but that's a really fun scene that builds a lot of tension. Once again, his girlfriend is, like, just so enamored with him that she doesn't pick up on, like, what's happening. And then I think she starts to sense that something weird is going on. And then um, they go to get on the plane, and that's when they see what happened. And then he tries to, like, casually leave. <laughs> well, first of all, when the when the luggage opens and all that money flies everywhere because of the little dog, um, dog, that was, like, hilarious and just great. <laughs> and the look on his face as the money is just going everywhere is is pretty awesome. That freaking dog. I was so <laughs> mad at that thing. And it comes right back to the owner after that. I'm just like, I want to throw that yeah. dog into the propeller of that plane. Like, this is what you deserve. And she punctuates it by saying, oh, thank God. I'm so glad nothing happened to you and you came back. And so that next to the money disappearing is very funny. And then he just tries to, like, casually leave. And those two people that were looking at him at the very beginning of him walking in there and were like, "Mm, this guy's shady. Um, You know, those are the people that stop him with the guns. Um, 
I I think, you know, nowadays too, you can't just casually be like, I'm not getting on this plane. I'm just going to I'm just going to go like that wouldn't happen at all today either, which I, I don't know why, but I enjoy seeing that in movies like how things have changed at airports, too. Um, but yeah, I, I and I think the way it ends is just great. So sorry to jump all the way to the end, but those were my favorite parts. That's no problem. <laughs> I mean, like this, like what you were saying that you you're happy that he got caught. I didn't know you were partners with McGruff, the crime dog. <laughs> I know. What an art. <laughs> um, no, but it, 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 I just thought it was a perfect ending you know i guess it's not so much that i wanted to see him punished but that that's such poetic justice like it just wraps up the movie really well that like they went through all that and then it's all gone like there's just something satisfying about that i love sterling hayden's expression where it, like it literally seems like his soul was just left his body right there and it's like oh my god and seeing it just cuts back to it just it's still flying in the air it's that much money this is that many dollar bills it's just gone like, oh, it is, and you're right, it is a, you would raise a red flag at that. And that's why you don't fly out of there. You, you, you drive out of that. You drive out of the city because a lot of people can be looking that, at, at cars, like, and then you fly in a different why, city. Yeah, why didn't he just drive away? I guess that ruins the movie. But, right. <laughs> like, yeah, he, he should have driven. I thought that, too. I was like, this is really risky, but it's even riskier now. It's probably a lot easier back then. Yeah, and... Like, like, what was it? Like, going back to earlier with the first conversation that Faye and Johnny had, where he's like, I'm not too smart and I'm not that good looking. And I'm like, no, don't put yourself down there. You, you're you still Colleen Gray. You're still an attractive woman. I don't know why you feel like you can't do better than Johnny. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, I had to suspend a lot of, you know, belief, disbelief there because she's like, obviously gorgeous. I love that, though. Another trope of old movies of women being like, I'm not that pretty. It's like, I feel like that's more just like what guys wanted to hear, you know, her being super humble and like, I, like not knowing she's pretty was very desirable back then. But yeah, it was like, I don't, I don't know how we're supposed to believe you're not a super pretty girlfriend. <laughs> like, you're clearly gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, you think of it as the... They're like, I guess you have a gamut of, like, female uh, characters in here. Like, obviously, you have Faye. Yeah, she's, like, innocent, pure, waited for him for years. Right. And then you yeah. have Sherry, on the other hand, where she's more yeah. about herself. And then you have, the I believe, the, the cop's wife in the middle, who's in a happy relationship. Um, well, not the cop's wife. I think it's one of the other characters' wives who's sick. And that's why he's doing this deal to keep her healthy. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't leave the, the bed. Like, she like, her only two scenes are where she's sick laying in bed. Obviously, she does not let, make the biggest <laughs> impression in the movie. But it, there is a gamut there. And you're right. Like, these, the starlets of the day. Like, I'm not that good looking. Like, I am sorry. You are like the glossiest looking thing on the screen right now. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> yeah. it is, it is a, a symptom of older movies. Yeah, I think I think that they're, you know, for a public image, too, they want them to appear, like, more humble or whatever. But, yeah. And, and maybe nowadays they would have even casted somebody that's not as glamorous. You know what I mean? Like, that's another thing that's changed, too. Of Like, in old Hollywood movies, like, everyone is perfect looking. So, nowadays, like, they try to vary it a little bit more to where they look like, you know, quote-unquote, real people. Salt-of-the-earth people. But, um, yeah. And I, I guess mostly they were just implying that she was, like super naive and very trusting and very dependent on him because you know he's not really a catch he's been in prison all this time and he just got out so i guess they have to kind of sell to us that she would be willing to like 
um, cover for him at that airport later. Right. And it like, also like earlier on when he gets the suit, the, the suitcase that's too big and he dumps all the money in the suitcase at one point, it is a, a pet peeve of, of mine in movies when they dump all the money out and it's very loose and they, not everything lands in the suitcase and they, like, they, they just bundle it up. I'm like, you're still leaving like maybe like $3,000 worth of bills right there on the ground. You could spend the next few seconds of grabbing all that money and putting it in the bag right there. Maybe I'm just like, I understand you're in a, in a rush, but I wouldn't leave that money just lying around. Right. <laughs> um, but another scene I, I really enjoy is when we actually we're introduced to Maurice, like who's going to be the, like the, the thug of it and of course he's the one berating chess players at a local chess hangout and a chess and pool <laughs> hall like showing that he's not just a, a brute that he's yeah. that he's a very uh, articulate and intelligent person just happens to beat up people for a living <laughs> yeah that was a good scene um but like i would say like I, it's really something here where you just imagine like this is like because like Kubrick made two feature films prior to this, like mm-hmm. he had made like one independently by himself, which he absolutely detested, and he wanted all those prints destroyed. But it later had been they had, <laughs> so dramatic, yeah, and like because he, he thought it was called Fear and Desire that he didn't think it was that good, and but it has been recovered, and you, I think you can get that like. It comes in one of the Criterion Collection movies for his. Like it comes like a, as an extra, mm-hmm. much like for the Criterion Collection for the Killing. His next feature film, Killer's Kiss, um, is included with it, and that's more. That's about very much like how the Killing. That's about a boxer like with one last good fight in him, and um, and the things that go awry with that. Oh, okay, so pretty similar. Yeah, and even to the point, like, the climax of that movie influenced the ending of one of the, the Batman the Animated Series episodes. Oh, okay. Yeah, where, like, I think it's the introduction of Scarface where the the, the climax happens in a mannequin factory, much like how Killer's Kiss oh, yeah. has a very similar setting. Okay, cool. That's a neat Easter egg. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm filled with. Uses information like that. Ask me, my fam- Same here. ask me my family member's birthdays and I'll be like days <laughs> in the year somewhere on the calendar that's where hmm. they are uh, I was also surprised at the runtime. you know it's pretty short right and, and I think it's it, it is something to say about brevity in movies and like yeah like obviously a lot of movies today are like two hours pluses and everything and then he has the TV shows like Oh, they gotta be a mandatory ten episodes or twelve episodes, or if you're in a network, it's twenty-two episodes. And there's a lot of things that can be cut out of it. A lot of fat that could be trimmed. But then you think of older movies like this, where it's like it's eighty-five minutes and it's in and out. I, I watched Robocop last week. That's ninety-seven minutes from beginning to end before credits, and it's like, wow, impressive to say the least. Yeah, and I mean, even for him specifically, right? Because like some of his movies are pretty long. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, you think of, like, 2001, like, that has the huge overture and everything. Like, The mm-hmm. Shining is two and a half hours in length. Right. <laughs> it's like the longer he was making movies, the longer the movies got. Yes. Um, that's the same thing, like, with, with James Caron. The longer he made movies, the longer his movies gave. Same, same thing with <laughs> Quentin Tarantino. 
They're drunk on power at that point. Like, I cannot, don't tell me to cut this. I will not cut this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think what other things I really enjoyed about it. Like, I mean, it's just the, the stock nature of the music, but like, I love like the very mm-hmm. dramatic music, that bum, bum, bum. Oh, yeah. A lot it's of always fun. Yes. Um, but you're right. Like, I think it's, you could like put this and maybe double indemnity back to back and you could have a really good double feature. Yes. I like that movie a lot too. That was another movie that I saw and I hadn't seen it before. And I was like, man, this is like really good, solid. I, I like movies like that, that sort of embody all the elements of a, a good noir, but like just done so well. Like there's so many that are great, but there's some that really stand out. I think double indemnity indemnity is one of them i'm always worried i'm not going to be able to say that word <laughs> oh yeah it is luck of the it's draw like right there like, like yeah. oh, i may pronounce this right i may not but we're gonna roll with it <laughs> exactly but yeah i think this would be a good uh follow-up to that i think they both have really good solid and i mean i, I guess there's something a little theatrical and cartoony about the uh, femme fatale in them but I think in both cases, you enjoy the badness of that character, or at least I did. Like, um, I get that she's evil, but it's also like she's so smart and fun, too. And in a lot of movies, you'll have uh, a couple baddies that are women, but they're sort of one-dimensional. And so I I like in that movie and in this one, I feel like it's a little more complicated. Yeah, I I mean, like, if you're... There's something that... um that Jack Nicholson said during the make, like, like the making of Face Run on Batman 89, it's like, the worse you are, the more they love you. I mean, the badder the, yeah. bad the character is, the the more appealing it is to people. Like, if you want to, like, it's an underrated movie that I, I discovered recently because I was going through the Criterion Collection. I was going through collecting as many Michael Curtiz movies as I can because he's such a prolific filmmaker. And there's a movie called The Breaking point um with john garfield and patricia neal and patricia neal is the like for my money like one of the most alluring film femme fatales in any movie right there and it is like that's about a a boat captain who is down on his luck and he's trying to support his family gets involved with the crime in order to pay off his debts but as you can imagine things go awry Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like, when things go bad for characters like that, it's, like, fun and satisfying, and they get this, like, dramatic ending, and, like, yeah, it's just got all the the right elements of something like that. Exactly, and just based upon this conversation right now, I'm like, all right, I guess I'm going to go through and watch a lot of film noirs this week. <laughs> I know. I, 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 It's gotten to the point where Nick is like, another one? <laughs> like, when I've queued this one up, he's like, hmm. I'm like, it's for an episode. He's like, okay. <laughs> I can imagine he's like, like, honey, you know movies were made in color and, like, technicolor, too, and not just black and white. <laughs> I think I think he likes these, though, because he, he loves, like, the Maltese Falcon uh, and, and movies like that. So he, he's he's good with it. It's It's probably when I pick the more, like, obscure you know musicals and stuff like that that he's like okay i'm probably gonna play on my phone <laughs> <laughs> at least he's honest with it that that's i think that's the most thing you oh, yeah. ask for it right he won't I-, I do have to sometimes be like okay i feel like i pick every movie so is this really okay but he'll usually tell me if he doesn't like it gotcha um yeah it's just kind of curious like 
like Sterling Hayden, who's the lead in here, and like it was something that <clears throat> later on I found out that he was in the running to play Quint in Jaws. Oh wow! Yeah, he was one of the early people that Spielberg wanted for the role. Like he wanted, like his first mm. choice was Lee Marvin, who said no, and then Sterling Hayden said, uh, like he, I think he had tax issues. Like so many Ooh. Hollywood filmmakers, or Hollywood yeah. actors, um, kind of like how Robert Shaw had tax issues with the United States. Um, <laughs> and that's why he's just like, I got to be done by a certain day. Otherwise, if I'm in the country too long, the IRS takes my money. And as we all know, Jaws ran over schedule, and I don't think Robert Shaw made a lot of money from Jaws. Mm. Yeah. But, and then obviously, like, with Kubrick, Sterling Hayden shows up as in, like I mentioned before, in Doctor Strange Love, and he's the impetus of like how things start going sideways in that movie because he wants to bomb um, the USSR to protect our precious fluids, as he says it. <laughs> well, I like a good noir movie that isn't just about a detective. Like, there's really good detective ones, but I like when it's like a different type of character. So I, I appreciated that the main character in this one was not a detective but is in fact a criminal i think i think that's fun yeah there's like like there's a new great de- uh, detective one like it but that it's in a traditional sense there's one called doa mm-hmm. where it's like i think i've seen that one it, it like you can probably find it like i know friend of the show scott over at dc uh, like um film squad cast like we've discussed it previously like on his the the patreon show over there where like, you can get it, like, in film, like, cheap bundles. Like, you get, like, 10 film noirs for $10. And uh, cause I believe it's in the public domain now. But it's about a man who walks into a police station. And he's like, I want to report a murder. The desk officer says, who? Myself. And it's all about how he was poisoned. Yeah, I've seen this. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I, I'm like, I'm sure it's probably on YouTube. It's probably uploaded. If not in pieces, in all in one piece, you could probably find. Um but like you mentioned before, Maltese Falcon is fantastic as well, and one of the I think that was the directorial debut of John Huston. Oh, okay. Yeah, like like I can like I made a concited effort for this year to get to learn a little more about classic Hollywood, and I'm doing my best nice. there. Very cool. Yeah, I'm just trying to think: is there anything else that you, that you want to talk about? Like, cause <laughs> I can keep going on about this movie, but I feel like you know what know when to get out oh no you're fine i mean if if you have more things that you wanted to say go for it if not i understand it it is a shorter film so i'm, I'm good either way yeah I, I just find it it is i'm glad this movie was a it was a somewhat success that led him to pass his glory and led to further movies that he was able to do later on in his career i just feel like mm-hmm. Like we had mentioned previously, that the more movies Kubrick made, the more stylized they got. Stylized and maybe like even like this is a harsh word, maybe indulgent. <laughs> yeah, like uh, yeah, that's a good word for it. I think um, it's like yeah, it's like he he had too much freedom, and I, I feel like restrictions can work. I mean, limitations make you more creative. I agree. Uh, yeah, and maybe if, like he made more movies like this and Doctor Strange Love and like Lolita, not subject matter wise, but just, right. Just, no, no, I'm not judging you for that at all. Obviously, like, I want a, I want a cinematic universe of Lolita. Obviously, 
No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> um, no, no. But like, just the, the sense of brevity of it, I just feel like it's something that he was really good at, and I just wish he did more of. Yeah, no, I, I I completely understand that because I really did like this movie. I thought it was really solid. Like you said, not a minute's wasted, and it is a shorter runtime, but every every single second counts. And um, there are some of his movies that they do stretch on, and you do wonder if they could have been cut down a little bit. So I I totally am with you there. And and, and it's more of a even though it's nonlinear, it it does feel a little more straightforward. It's not you know, a museum of things in the background of every scene. Right. I absolutely agree. And yeah, I mean, like this one, like was my favorite Kubrick movie for years, but I think Pass the Glory is still my favorite. But I think it's, it all comes down to that final scene in the bar when it's the, the woman singing um, German to the French soldiers. And they all start crying to, because of like, because of just how beautiful voice is. And, and it's such a, it's such contrast to the, the very dark nature to Kubrick's movies going forward. Like, cause it ends on a, I, it ends on hope in that movie. At least that, that's how I interpret that movie. And I think that no, I agree. Yeah, there's a warmness to some of these earlier movies that you don't get in, in his later career. Yeah, and the fact that he would marry that actress and that would be like his third wife, and I think that's the, the marriage that lasts the longest in his in his life. Mm-hmm. And it's I mean, it's a it's a scene that makes me come to tears, and it's just like oh, it's absolutely beautiful. But then you think of like how Phil Mel Jackson ends, or how The Shining ends, <laughs> yeah. or even right. It's like that's just like I need to go stand outside in the sun and breathe the fresh air because I think I need that after this. Yeah, they're very heavy films, and this is not a heavy film. No. Yeah, and, but that's why I enjoy the killing, and that's why I chose it, and that's why I love this movie. <laughs> well, then, yeah, you kind of already summed it up. You took my last couple of questions. I'm sorry. Um, no, you're good. You're good. You're ahead of the curve. And h- how do you pitch this movie to someone that hasn't seen it before, though? If you want to see a classic gangster movie about a heist, but told from a very different point of view, that's why you need to check out the killing. It is a heist movie, but done from a nonlinear stance. I love that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, if you like this genre of filmmaking, then this is one that you have to see. It's like required, I think. I really enjoyed it a lot. And if you like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, <laughs> you'll also like it. Um, so, Tim, where can people find you? Yeah, I am active, like... Um on social media like so many people like you can find me on twitter at timothy rooney 2 um my instagram at t rooney 1012 and my two podcasts i do the anything goes podcast which you can find wherever you get your podcast um that's where i talk about geek and pop culture um horror movies and so many other things and lisa's been a frequent guest on there um yeah, it's so fun. Yeah, and like we're <laughs> we're covering the DCEU. That's what like the thing we're doing right now. Um, but I'm just feel like we're up to Justice League now. I'm just like, do you know what? Let's wait. I've, I've been thinking about oh, like boy. let's wait for a little bit there before <laughs> the other iteration, this Justice League, comes out next year. Um, yeah, or you could always go out of order. Like we could talk about Aquaman or. Uh... 
Birds of prey. We could do that. We could do that. We could just be like, because I know your feelings about that movie <laughs> and my mixed feelings about that. I, like my feelings not mixed about that. I don't think I would just rip into it for a whole the whole time we record, though. I I mean I like DC too much to do that. Right. I have no problem. Like I enjoy the movie, the theatrical movie that we have. I know it's a hot take to say. It's all the not. <laughs> You're allowed to enjoy things. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah. And so that's well, my first podcast. I'm sorry. Yeah. We're still in the plug scenario. <laughs> we went down here. a rabbit hole, but it, that's all good. Yeah. Uh, and so the other podcast go- I do is Please Rewind, the RF4RM Retro Show, where I talk uh, about movies when it comes to their anniversaries, usually with uh, co-host Guy Milks and Jamie Drewley. And our latest episode that we have just dropped um, – that by the time, uh, during this recording anyway, we talked about Airplane for the 40th anniversary. Nice. And if it all goes well, you know what? I'm going to stop myself there. I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm going to say Airplane is the most recent episode. I don't want to jinx myself because of things in the future. <laughs> Understandable. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, always a pleasure to have you and uh, look forward to having you again in the future. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. I, I really, really appreciate it. Um, because it's nice to talk about movies on another podcast and I don't have to be doing all the producing. I will say it shamelessly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, whew, I just have to show up and talk. I know. I love that too. So I, I totally sympathize. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much. No problem. I hope to be back soon. Bye.